welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the fields of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Interim Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. So today we have with us Jeff Edelstein, who is a UMass PhD student in the Higher Education Program and Graduate Assistant for the Center for Student Success Research and David Paquette, a master's student in the higher education program and graduate assistant in the disability services working and learning specialist program. Jeff and David are active on campus with the Alliance Against Ableism and are here today to share their knowledge about ableism and how we can make UMass an inclusive space for all students. So first, I want to thank you both for being here today. Um, I absolutely appreciate you taking the time to have this important discussion with us and for our listeners. Um, so we'll jump right in and get started with some questions. To start off, can you each give a brief introduction of yourself and the work you're doing as part of the Alliance Against Ableism? Jeff, do you want to go first? Uh, I'm Jeff, uh, Jeff Edelstein. I use he, him, his pronouns. Uh, so um, as Neff said, I'm a second year PhD student in the higher ed program. Um, my research focuses on disability in higher education, the experiences of students with disabilities, the experiences of staff and faculty with disabilities, disability cultural centers and ableism writ large in higher ed, um, all areas that I'm interested in. Um, I got involved with the work through my undergraduate uh, career where I engaged with research about autistic student experiences in college. And uh, ever since then, I've been engaging with the topic in different ways, um, including more areas that are more explicitly informed by disability studies and ideas around ableism. Hi everyone, I'm David Paquette. I use he, him, his, pro he, he, him, his pronouns. Um, I'm a second year student in the master's program, as Neff mentioned. Um, I got involved in the Alliance, I think largely because of my undergraduate college experience, which was kind of isolating as a student with an invisible disability. It wasn't really something that was happening on the college campus that I was at. I went to UMass Dartmouth and I was really just feeling isolated and looking for the opportunity to engage in community around that. Um, uh, despite that, I, I was able to obtain my bachelor's degree, but when I applied to a graduate program and got in, I was super excited to hear that the Alliance Against Ableism exists, um, looking to really just hold space and create community around disability on, on a college campus. So that was a really big motivator for me to, to join the group, to just really have a, a different experience from my undergrad and just create shared meaning around disability and, and really have that space, um, yeah. Thank you. So we, we jumped in and began talking about, um, you know, your involvement with Alliance Against Ableism, but we never really define what this is, right? So can you, either one of you or both of you in your own words, describe to me what is the Alliance Against Ableism? What does it stand for? What's the mission? What are the people who are members? Is it just for students? Is it for students, faculty, and staff? 
Um, take us through a little bit of that, please. Uh, I can start by sort of describing what our mission is, and then maybe Jeff, if you want to fill in some of the in-between finesse of, of what that looks like. So. Um, the Alliance Against Ableism aims to do several things. Um, one is have conversations around disability identity and inclusion and discuss its intersection with other identities, so beyond disability. Um, we also look to address ableism and barriers to inclusion and equality on campus within the community. Um, we look to incorporate disability into larger systemic conversations and help create a campus that's built for everyone. Um, and lastly, engage in programmatic and educational opportunities, much like this podcast, um, surrounding disability on campus uh, and within the community to just make it more of a common conversation that is happening to sort of normalize the experience of students with disabilities at UMass. Yeah, and uh, the Alliance originated uh, about a year and a half ago, I want to say, um, February 2019, somewhere around there. Um, and it was actually started by uh, a colleague of ours, Josh Pearson, who is the director of the Assistive Technology Center, sort of uh, well-kept secret gem uh, on campus, uh, and a student um, who uh, recently graduated from UMass. And um, the, the group itself, um, it is comprised of individuals from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, there are students with disabilities, uh, there are students without disabilities. Um, that's part of the reason why uh, we are called the Alliance Against Ableism, because we explicitly try to engage allies in the work um, as well. And uh, we, we also have faculty and staff members as well, which um, has been really helpful because we have faculty and staff members with disabilities who can talk about what things are like further down the line. Um, and they can also raise and have raised issues to our attention that aren't really talked about. So we spend a lot of time talking about students with disabilities, but um, faculty and graduate students and staff with disabilities are rarely talked about, um, just in general, not just at UMass. Um, so that's helped to broaden our perception and engagement and all those kinds of things. So we have some really great um, faculty folks um, who uh, both engage in some of the advising roles and their and talk about their experiences, um, but also those who can just sort of broaden the perspective of the Alliance. So it makes sure to incorporate uh, the needs and ideas of all campus community members with disabilities. Awesome, thank you for that. Um, you mentioned, I think it was you, David, who mentioned the idea of thinking about the intersectionality of um, disabilities with other identities. Um, and something that I personally study in my research is intersectionality, specifically looking at race and gender and how that plays out in culture. And you know, we talk a lot on this campus and in my office especially about how we define equity and inclusion. Um, and we've had some really rich discussions recently about the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, but something that we haven't discussed as much is ableism. So I want to start by asking you both to talk a little bit about what is ableism? Um, I can start with more of a sort of maybe textbook definition of ableism and then 
we can fill in maybe more of an all-encompassing definition or way to look at it. So to, to put it maybe more plainly, um, it's implicit or explicit discriminatory beliefs that people who are non-disabled are better than people with disabilities. Um, and then also examining the structures of power, right, that reinforce that belief. So higher ed in many ways has been designed and excluded people with disabilities. And I think that's probably the most salient example uh, given the context of this is like, um, how has higher ed historically excluded people with disabilities? And that's something we're actively hoping to fight. Um, and I think despite the, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, which are federal acts of legislation that have allowed people with disabilities to, to have access to institutions of higher ed, in many ways that has not guaranteed um, that sort of feeling included piece. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to the pervasiveness of ableism where it, it, it is in some, many ways a subconscious uh, perspective or ideology that people hold that they're often not even aware of when they're interacting with people with disabilities. Yeah, um, and uh, thanks David for for that, I, that, that hit on a lot of things. Um, when it comes to ableism um, and, and the logic of ableism, um, which, which is, I think, important to understand because it underscores, um, since we're talking about intersectional issues, um, it underscores other types of oppression. So ableism at its core is about the idea that some human beings are more human or more worthy than one another because of differences in what they can, cannot do, and what their bodies and minds are like. Um, there are some great examples of folks who have emphasized how this has been incorporated to oppress uh, individuals with other minoritized identities. So for example, um, in the women's uh, suffrage movement, the idea that women were did not have the intelligence to, to partake in voting. That is an ableist idea that because someone is less intelligent, they should not participate. It's part of the logic that underscores the sub, the legality of the sub-minimum wage that says that you can pay individuals with disabilities less than the minimum wage um, because that's what they quote unquote deserve um, or are worthy of. So getting into that is, is just this idea of coming out or, or trying to intentionally think about the ways in which we assume that people are more or less deserving of humanity and you know basic human rights um, based on their the ways that their bodies and minds do not conform to how society expects them to conform for convenience and then speaking to the academic space um, as david brought up there's a great book called Academic Ableism. It's actually available open access online in an accessible format, um, purposefully so, uh, because of the topic matter uh, through the University of Michigan Press. Um, well, that's where it's published. It might be available from open access elsewhere. But it's written by J. Timothy Dolage, who's a um, professor from, I believe, University of Waterloo. And it just touches on all those ideas, the ideas that um, universities and colleges are intentionally made to exclude uh, based on usually perceived intelligence um, in, in a lot of cases. 
Um, and there's a lot more to college and university than just that. Um, there are, there's the experience of going to college, going away from home and making all these new ideas and connections. Um, and there's also different ideas of intelligence. So it, 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 the idea of academic ableism and understanding that asks us to critically look at how the university was intentionally destructed, uh, constructed and think about ways that it could be um, rethought, re-envisioned, uh, reformed uh, to be more inclusive. Thank you. Wow, that's, you know, I, it's funny being on this side of it, I, I'm listening and I'm, you know, of course, trying to be intentional about keeping the conversation going, but you all have me deeply um, lost in the things that you're saying and sort of relating it to other aspects of intersectionality, um, but also other aspects of oppression and understanding yeah. how all of these, it's, you know, I, I use the term sometimes, it's not the oppression Olympics, right? We're not trying to compete for who's most oppressed, but really understanding the ways that the oppressions are connected. Um, and something that you said, Jeff, the idea of, you know, seeing the humanity in someone um, really resonated with me when we think about the oppression Olympics and we think about people suggesting that one oppression is more significant than the other. It's at the end of the day, we're trying to see the humanity and everyone and treat them accordingly. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And to touch on one more thing about the intersectionality, um, there's actually um, an individual who writes about oral histories um, of the disability rights movement. His name is Fred Pelka. Um, and uh, in a conversation with him, the quote came up that when you look for disability, you see it in all places except in history. Um, and one way to sort of draw that out um, in, in, in some, sort of tied into intersectionality is that um, along with the, um, the reinvigoration of the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, um, there have been disabled act advocates coming out and talking about one, the role that groups like the Black Panthers uh, had in making sure that the 504 Act sit-in, the sit-in that made the Rehabilitation Act actually pass into law, um, the idea that it wouldn't have actually succeeded without support from the Black Panthers, and that there has been significant overlap in work against oppression across, um, marg across marginalized identity groups. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so what does equity and inclusion look like for the disability community? And I'm sure you both could talk for days about this, um, but just briefly. I think that looking at the difference between disability rights and justice is like a good place to start. Um, so there are, are laws that ensure rights like the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA, but they don't necessarily guarantee justice. Um, so when we start to think about equity and, equity and inclusion, I think it's important to examine how just because someone is in a space, it does not necessarily mean that they feel included or part of that space. Um, and also examining accessibility, not as an option, but as something that is essential. Um, so really like shifting viewpoint or, or perspective to be like, I'm not doing this because I have to, but I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think talking about ways to do that, um, like 
for example, asking students upfront about their communication needs or preferences to learning. Um, also just being flexible, not being rigid for the sake of being rigid for the sake of academic integrity. Um, and then just having a general appreciation for all types of diversity, which should be inclusive of disability as well. So some people, when they think about disability, they have a picture in their mind of, of what they think that looks like. Um, and that does not match the lived experiences often of people with disabilities. How do you define disability? Um, so I think I'll start with the Oxford Dictionary <laughs> definition of disability and I will allow Jeff to sort of dissect that a bit. Um, so Oxford defines disability as a physical or mental condition that limits a person's movements, senses, or activities. And so that's tied to some important ways of thinking about disability. Um, another definition that's very, tends to be very important and what people might go to is found in the Americans with Disabilities Act, where it refers to a condition that interferes with one or more important and essential like daily life activities, which include work, education, dressing oneself, feeding oneself. Um, part of the issue that, um, that I and others uh, who, who engage with conversations around disability justice and ableism uh, get at with definitions like the Oxford one and also the ADA is that there are certain limitations to that. So um, the Oxford definition mentions uh, physical or mental and what's that, what that is getting at is bodies and minds. Um, the, the core idea or one of the core ideas that comes about in uh, disability studies and disability justice literature is that bodies and minds come in a great deal of diversity. Um, this has uh, intersections with the um, body positivity movement around, um, around uh, fat and different sized bodies, as well as intersections uh, with the neurodiversity movement, for example. And uh, when I try to think about disability or try to define it, I tend to think of it as the, the way in which society perceives and defines individuals with bodies and minds that do not conform to the standard. Um, and this has many, many different permutations. One of the challenges in talking about disability is that it's such a broad category. Um, there are so many different things that it can cover, ranging from uh, blindness or deafness to epilepsy and chronic illness. So it's, it's, it's hard to get to a core definition, um, but at, at, it, at the core of the matter is the idea of exclusion based on those factors and uh, consideration of how the reality of how individuals' bodies and minds are different um, and centering the agency and the lived experiences of disabled folks. Thank you for that. So COVID-19 and remote learning have posed unique challenges for our campus, um, but the effects have been felt differently. How has the disability community been impacted by COVID-19 and the shift to online learning? Yeah, I think for it, like at first, it's important to mention like 
speaking broadly that the disability community has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19, specifically folks with underlying chronic health conditions such as weakened immune systems. Um, and there has been gross, like a gross lack of consideration for that community. So um, just creating space to, to mention that I think is important. Thank you. Um, and then thinking about students specifically, um, looking at students who have like perhaps historically struggled to physically access spaces on campus, um, it's actually gotten a lot easier because now remote uh, learning is remote and they're able to access stuff from the comfort of their home. So for members of that community, um, as well as for folks who have preferred information in a digital content or context, um, it's gotten easier, assuming that the material is accessible. Um, however, remote learning for students um, with certain disabilities, such as like where executive functioning is impaired or a need for accessible content exists and it's not provided, um, I think it's gotten a lot harder. Um, as Jeff mentioned before, like disability is such a, a broad category of people and experiences. So it's hard to pinpoint, like, has it gotten easier? Has it gotten worse? I think it's very yeah. unique to a person's experience um, and also might change on a day-to-day -day basis for people, um, depending on having good days and bad days, as we all do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and part of the challenge, as David sort of brought up again, is that there, um, I've had folks mention that there is no one disabled community or disability culture. And that is that is very true. There's such a wide variety of experiences. Um, I think one of the things that is coming out of this experience in the pandemic, um, in addition to responses and pushback against, um, against choices not to provide uh, medical treatment for individuals with disabilities who have some type of condition that might uh, render them more vulnerable to COVID. Um, there's been movements like uh, no body is disposable. Um, and then looking forward, um, there, there have been other things that are tied to that, which include uh, getting the medications that one needs through the mail and um, then with respect to schooling, thinking about the, what we will take away from this extended experiment in remote learning. As David mentioned, there are some benefits. There are some positives. There have been students with disabilities and employees and people with disabilities um, in general who have wanted remote access as an accommodation and been told it's unreasonable. We often talk about the the term reasonable or unreasonable accommodations. Um, and so the, the idea that now we've shown that we can do remote access, um, one has rubbed a lot of folks who have asked for it in the past the wrong way, because suddenly it- I can it, imagine. Yeah, it's, it, it's gone from impossible to widely possible. Um, and so an important thing that um, is going on right now are conversations about how do we take what we learn, the good and the bad, back once we are able to safely do in-person classes um, more significant to a more significant extent, and making sure that 
we take these lessons about accessibility and knowing what is possible um, and, and bringing that to, um, bringing that with us. To that point, Jeff, are there any, you know, things in particular that you two can think of that answers that question, right? It, it, the idea of what have we learned? What are some things that you think we should have learned um, as a campus um, or as an institution that we should be taking back to face-to-face -face learning um, or back to, you know, whatever normal looks like beyond this pandemic? I think a good starting point um, that's definitely been illustrated through this pandemic is just having open communication with students about their needs. Um, there's definitely, I've seen a push for that here at UMass and I've personally felt that for my professors, just that open dialogue and creating a caring and open environment where you're able to share those needs. So um, not only talking about it, but sort of walking the walk and really creating that space for that. Mm -hmm. uh, also just also being flexible as a, as a general um, good practice like within reason with teaching so having like arbitrary deadlines just to have deadlines when if someone turns something in a day later it's not really going to affect their progress in the course little things like that can make a huge difference um, and then in terms of like content having image descriptions and alt text for all images and videos um, captions or transcripts for all videos um, checking your pdfs with optical character recognition for screen reader access for, for all PDFs. Um, it's not only a good uh, tool for people who might use a screen reader, but also for just doing simple highlighting in a PDF. It makes it a lot easier for all students. Mm -hmm. So those are some universal design principles that come to mind. Um, and then lastly, I've also heard of a lot of faculty using questionnaires to check in with students. Um, on how they're doing, what's working in the course, what's not, what's not working in the course. I don't think there's any reason to stop doing that when we return to in-person classes to just, again, create that community of caring and understanding in the classroom to continue to connect with students to check in and, and see how you're doing, they're doing. So we've talked a lot about ableism and how it's harmful. Um, what are some ways that non-disabled folks can build a practice of anti-ableism in our lives? Um, there's a lot of ways. Um, it, it, uh, I, I would say, for one, uh, look to the absolute deluge of information about anti-racism that, that was circulated um, in more popular media and more uh, more. Uh, forward-facing or just easily accessible circles over the summer. Um, that is a good guideline. People who sent those out and cultivated those materials looked at podcasts, movies, books, people to follow, things like that. Um, so I think in terms of thinking about what individuals can do, um, what non-disabled individuals can do, uh, thinking about the variety in media and approaches that one can take. Um, and so to that extent, um, there are some recommendations like following uh, particular disabled thought leaders. So Alice Wong, for example, uh, is a, uh, the individual who is the head of the Disability Visibility Project, which has published books, runs a podcast about disability, um, and does all sorts of stuff 
just engaging with the topic. Um, and so just the simple act of following someone like her on Twitter um, can expose someone to a lot of resources. Um, same with individuals like Beth Haller, H-A-L-E-L-L-E-R. Um, she actually like cultivates a page on Facebook and on Twitter having to do with like resources around disability and you can just get so much out of that. Um, but for folks who are looking to get more specific issues, I, I think it comes down to a question of um, looking at the practices that maybe uh, one has internalized and seeing how to uh, push back against those or, or to, to develop a little bit. So one aspect uh, that we talk a lot about is language. So trying to change the dialogues uh, around ableist language um, and around flexibility in language concerning disability. So some terms that are common in uh, common in everyday conversations like crazy, stupid, dumb, lame uh, are are terms that are ableist. They have been used to uh, to discount or dehumanize disabled individuals uh, in the present and throughout history. Um, there's a another advocate and uh, and uh, legal advocate named Lydia X. Z. Brown, uh, who has a website called Autistic Hoya, H-O-Y-A. They went to Georgetown, uh, and apparently they're the Hoyas. Um, they have a wonderful website that not only has news and information, but has a comprehensive list of ableist language. Um, there's a similar one at Syracuse University on the website for their Disability Cultural Center. So just thinking about language as, as one point is a great starting point and a and a great indication of where we we have uh, more casual microaggressions of ableism going on in our daily lives. Um, there's there's just so many resources out there, and I would encourage folks to um, like for folks trying to understand marginalized experiences in general is um, the common advice there. Uh, don't rely on disabled folks in your circle to educate you. Uh, there is no shortage of writing, media, podcasts, all these different things that you can find. There's a wonderful movie on Netflix called Crip Camp, all these different things that you can uh, engage in. Thank you. As, as you were talking, I was able to follow both Lydia um, as well as Alice Wong. So thank you for that because I immediately will expand uh, my, my access and information flow of things related to, um, you know, anti-ableism. So it's, it, it can be as easy as that to start. So we appreciate yeah. that information. Yeah, and I think one of the things uh, that is truly wonderful about becoming aware of individuals like Alice Wong and Lydia Brown is the idea that um, we talk a lot about disability history, you know, the fight for disability rights, the, AD, the passage of the ADA, the 504 sit-in. Uh, if you wanna learn more about that, check out the Drunk History episode about it. It's very good and very funny. Um, but uh, there are modern day disability advocates who are on the front line pushing for the changes that we need to see. There, there have been folks historically pushing for things like deinstitutionalization or the right to community living. Uh, you can look at legal cases like the Olmstead Act, which the late uh, uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually uh, authored the majority opinion on. Um, but these individuals like Lydia and Alice are fighting for things like access to care, access to media, um, connection and disability justice. 
Lydia writes a lot about and talks a lot and all these things uh, about uh, police brutality and the intersection between uh, police brutality towards uh, bodies and individuals of color and disabled bodies. They actually have a wonderful anthology called uh, All the Way to Our Dreams that's written by um, autistic individuals of color. So these individuals are the people who will be in our history books um, in you know a decade or two and appreciating them now, um, especially in the disabled community where, um, you know, knock on wood for, for these individuals we're talking about in particular, but um, individuals do pass sometimes suddenly. Um, there are disabled advocates who have chronic illnesses and lose access to care that they need because their lives aren't valued as much um, by certain aspects of the medical system. And sometimes we lose these individuals. So to appreciate them as they're doing the work right now and to uh, spread that word and support that and support the work that they're doing uh, legally too. Um, folks like Lydia and the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network among other groups like Rooted in Rights and um, uh, the ARC. Um, I think that's really, really essential right now. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's that's really powerful. And again, it's as you you can begin that journey as quickly as following someone on Twitter, like I just did as you were talking. Um, so we have about five minutes, and then we'll wrap up. But one one I want to pivot a little bit to the idea, um, the fact that our office is partnering with you all for the Superfest um, and Disability Awareness Month. So can you tell us very quickly about the Superfest? as well as some initiatives that you may have planned or may be thinking about planning um, for Disability Awareness Month. David, I can take Superfest if you can take the other events that are happening later that you know better than I do. Um, but just to hit on Superfest uh, really quick, there's multiple film festivals out there for disability-focused films, but Superfest is probably the biggest. It's based out of the Paul Longmore um, Institute uh, on Disability um, based out of San Francisco. Um, it has an association with the San, San Francisco State. And Paul Longmore um, was a disability advocate who wrote um, a book called Why I Burned My Book. That's about how disabled folks can't make a certain amount of money uh, or else they risk losing uh, their benefits. So that's very important. Um, but the film festival itself, it happens every year. Um, this year it's all online and more accessible than it's ever been. So definitely dip your toes in October 16th through 18th, I think are the dates. Um, but there is a wonderful uh, array of films about disabled experiences by disabled filmmakers and creatives and just covering all sorts of different aspects of, of experience across, as we talked about before, various disabled communities. Um, so uh, it's, it's a great film festival that can introduce a lot of topics that folks may not have thought about. Um, there, was, there was one a couple of years ago, for example, uh, featuring uh, deaf actors signing the entire time and using, um, using uh, captions throughout. And it was talking about the difficult uh, dynamic of uh, among deaf friends and individuals when, for example, one has gone to uh, Gallaudet University, which is renowned as a school for the deaf, and others have not have access to that uh, because it's just this one large, just one specific institution. And also the idea of if you can, quote unquote, cure your disability, do you? Um, in that particular film, one of the individuals uh, gets a cochlear implant. 
and that's a point of tension. There's, uh, a, there's a lot of culture in deaf and disabled culture. So lots of different experiences in Superfest. There's films from the past too. Sounds fantastic, thank you. Um, and then more locally in October, um, the Disability Services Office is sponsoring two pieces of programming. Um, one is called Structural Obstacles to Holistic Disability Support in Higher Education. Um, and that will look at creating more inclusive and holistic models of support for students with disabilities. Um, so exploring topics such as funding, disability identity, campus culture, faculty perceptions, and disability stigma. Um, and that will have a, a group of panelists who are both um, faculty within higher education as well as disability services professionals. Um, and the other piece of programming is titled Everyday Ableism, Disability Through a Social Justice Lens. Um, and that will look at relevant research um, related to pervasive disability stereotypes and microaggressions. So a lot of what we've been talking about today and exploring how those perspectives inform personal and professional behaviors and attitudes and really looking at breaking those down and sort of taking that first step um, on educating yourself to how to be more inclusive of people with disabilities. Um, and those two pieces of programming, um, the first one I mentioned is Wednesday, October 21st at 2 p.m. and that's a webinar. And the second one is Thursday, October 22nd at 2 p.m. and it is also a webinar. And I believe information for that will be up on your website. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. So folks that are listening and want to get involved or want to, for instance, follow along with the Superfest, um, our office will be essentially um, donating tickets. So if you're interested in the Superfest and um, you want to get a free ticket, please reach out to the Office of Equity and Inclusion and we have a free ticket for you. Um, not free, obviously we're going to support the, the Superfest, um, but free to other community folks, whether you're on campus or not. Um, and then as well as you, as you said, David, these events that you all will be having, we're going to um, work with you all in supporting them and they will be also housed on our website as well as in our newsletter and hopefully we'll get some tweets out on um, Twitter as well as something on Instagram about these events as well. So we'll be certainly pushing these events out so that our broader community um, can know when they're happening and join as they see fit. So thank you both. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I, I feel like I've listened and not interjected as much as I would, I would have preferred to. And I only say that because you all were giving me so much good information, I didn't want to interrupt you. So thank you so much for that. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the UMass community? Um, anything? Um, you want to go first, David? Sure. I I, I, I'm working on an archival um, history project of disability student activism at UMass um, this semester. And I just wanted to highlight that this is not um, a new phenomenon. And I came across an article in a newspaper that chronicled from 1954, uh, a student, Marie Desmond, came to UMass. This is before the ADA, this is before the Rehabilitation Act, um, and she used a motorized wheelchair to get around, and she had a lot of problems getting around campus. So she based her English thesis on accessibility issues on campus, um, and she worked with people from the planning office, 
facilities to help create an accessibility uh, map of the campus for folks to get around. Um, and the initial idea of that map is actually still used today as a way to navigate um, the campus in an accessible way. So that's, yeah, almost 70 years ago wow. at this point. Um, so it was really cool to come across that and also just to point out that student activism is not a new phenomenon and it's now more important than ever you could argue to, to get involved and uh, just continue to yeah, expand access for folks. And clearly there is an impact if we're looking back almost 70 years ago, uh, some of the results of, of student activism long ago. Yeah, and um, tied to that, uh, this idea that this work is not necessarily new. Uh, we're hoping to push in new directions and all these things, but uh, we're not the only group on campus doing this work. Um, and we're not certainly not the only group in the US or around the world doing this kind of work. Um, the Alliance is not an official student group. Um, we're just a group that's trying to do a lot of good work around anti-ableism work um, and creating community. Um, but there are other groups on campus. There's the Disability Culture Club, uh, which uh, does a lot of film screenings and community gatherings around uh, disability-related topics. There's, of course, Disability Services um, and the, uh, the many services they uh, provide for students who uh, have accommodations, need to learn how to get accommodations. They actually have a, a, a fund for students who need uh, additional financial assistance to actually get diagnosed so they can get accommodations. Um, and there's also the newly created employee resource group uh, for staff and faculty with disabilities. Um, that group's relatively recent, but it's a really exciting development because as we talked about before, um, we don't talk about faculty and staff with disabilities a whole lot. Um, and that's a really important component, both for faculty and staff's well-being, but also for uh, the well-being of students who benefit from their mentorship and experience of how to navigate a university as a disabled individual. Absolutely, thank you. Um, so Jeff and David, thank you so much for taking the time today. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. As I said, I'm usually a lot more talkative, um, but I've just been like writing down notes nonstop and following people as you mentioned them on Twitter. So thank you for the information. Thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for using your voice in the ways that you both have, um, you know, working towards anti-ableism. And I can say for myself that I absolutely um, I have a younger brother who I still call my little brother, even though he's 28, um, who is mentally disabled. And, um, you know, it's a big part of who I am as a person. And it's something that um, I believe in. When, and when I say something that I believe in, it's being anti-ableism. So I certainly commit to um, living an anti-ableism life every day. And, you know, similar to anti-racism, it's, no, it's not anything that you... Um, arrive at. It's something that you continue to work towards, and that's something that I commit to. And I hope that folks that are listening um, also commit to, um, you know, anti-ableism as a practice and as something that they are also working towards um, every day and trying to get better and understanding that they're going to make mistakes and do and say the wrong things, but you have to keep, you have to get back up and keep trying, right, and keep fighting a good fight. So thank you both so much. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, absolutely. If folks uh, want to learn more, they're more than welcome to reach out to the Alliance or to either of us. David's information is on the Disability Services website. My information is on the Center for Student Success website. 
Fantastic. Thanks so, so much for having us, Steph. Oh, yeah.